Being a GC is kind of a tough and lonely job. I think this group is nice because it's it's probably your only source of free legal advice. It's been really a fantastic network of people, so I just wanted to make sure I really underscored that I really appreciate you all out there. Well, let's get into the meat of the conversation. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I I would advise any TechGC member to go on the Brain Trust platform and watch your presentation at the 2022 Global Summit. That was, in your words, sort of a result of you getting really good advice from a mentor early on in your career about how to be a successful GC. And you were kind of translated into your own experience and stories about the kind of eight key principles to follow uh, as GC. And I'd like to go through those a little bit one by one. Um, Maybe starting with the first one, uh, making your perceived or I'll rephrase that. It's more of a commandment. So make your make your perceived value greater than your expected value. What do you mean by that? Uh, A couple of things. I mean, if you know, we go back to what I said earlier, kind of understand why you're hired for the role that you have as the GC. That helps you understand what your expected value is, what your expected contribution is. And typically in, particularly in tech companies, but you know, your expected value is to manage all the legal stuff, get the contract signed, make sure the product doesn't break any laws, um, those kinds of things. And, you know, typically it's a very low bar. Um, be quiet, be seen, not heard, get all the legal stuff done and make sure the product's fine. And that's great. Now, there are other times, you know, your expected value might be to come in and you know, be the adult in the room or, you know, be the wise hand to guide us to going public. But it's very important to understand that it, what that is, because that's your baseline. And like I said, very often your baseline is, and like your baseline is, you know, X number of tasks completed, whether it's contracts or product reviews, whatever else, kind of minus your cost, how much I'm paying you for an outside counsel. And, you know, the number of tasks only grows over time and your costs pretty much grow every year over time, either from merit increases or outside counsel. So you're never really going to get on the left side of the equation to a positive number. It's always either going to be zero or negative because costs are going to go higher than the number of tasks. So you're losing or the number of tasks going to go up higher than costs. You're definitely losing because you're getting paid more. <laughs> you're getting paid less for more work. And the only way to really kind of balance that side of the equation um, is to do things that change people's perceptions of you over time and the value that you bring. So, and I, I did not originate this, by the way, I got this from a, someone who had, you know, a man named Morton Bellamy who does a lot of training and whatnot. So I'll give him credit for, for originalizing coming up with this concept, but yeah, it is true that, you know, you have to do those things that add value in ways above and beyond what is expected of you getting contracts done and whatnot. So are you able to anticipate problems that the CEO is going to have? Uh, are you able to solve problems that the CEO didn't know that he that she had? Are you able to you know, drive execution velocity? Do what we normally do, but do it faster, and therefore increase the metabolism of the enterprise. Uh, are you able to do things in a way that actually reduce, you know, save, you know, save resources, save money, save money, you know, do more with less? Um, those are the type of things that over time increases your perceived value. Well, hey, talk to Damien because Damien has a pretty good sense of what's coming around the corner with respect to blank. 
or, you know, there's a relationship on the board that, you know, it's going sideways and it's going to blow up that. So figure out kind of what your unique skill set is and leverage that to have people see you in a way above and beyond this, hey, the contracts person or the product person. I'm curious how you really know if you're making an impact in that area that you are demonstrating this really strong perceived value from your CEO. What is like the initial bias of your CEO coming in? And then how do you know that bias is changing, that you're really a value maker? And do you think this trend is changing in general, that CEOs immediately upon hiring a GC, they're expecting kind of a different level of value, not just the contracts guy uh, or or girl? Um, how do you really know that you're you're uh, achieving your, your goals here? Yeah, the way you measure that is the way you look at your interactions with the CEO and you look at your interactions with um, people whom, with whom the CEO is close and other executives. If people start coming to you asking for you know, unsolicited advice on things outside of your area of core competence, you know, people bring into you org issues, financing issues, personnel issues, those kinds of things, product issues, you know, marketing things. Things outside of legal stuff, you know, you're making progress. And the way I measure it is the more conversations I have about non-legal stuff, <laughs> the more progress I'm making. Mm -hmm. Unsolicited conversations is if they have to come to you, you then become kind of the magnet for those things. If you're always, you know, this is something I, I tell people, don't, don't always be the person who's offering comments on the areas outside of legal all the time. Mm -hmm. That's counterproductive. But if you see, if you're drawing people to you because... You know, you have developed a reputation for insight and good judgment on things outside of just legal. Mm -hmm. That's that's how you measure it. And don't expect it to take three months or whatever else. It's like, you know, it's like yoga. You know, don't expect any progress until at least six, six to eight, not eight or nine months. Right. Same thing. Just continually do it. Continue with the practice. Look for ways, you know, if asked, give constructive, constructive, insightful commentary work on cross-functional projects where people see you in a different light. Um, over time, that, that, that's, what, that's, that's, that's kind of the proof, the proof points for that. So number two, kind of a sobering one and maybe particularly relevant to today's situation is that no one is coming to save you. I think I got that right. Uh, <laughs> why such a dark number two? Well, you know, a lot of times we we get caught up in thinking that you know I have very strong, solid relationships with you know everyone in the office, all my coworkers. But at the end of the day, it's all based on self interest and maximizing, really, for most folks, short term self interest. And you know, there are times when it's in someone's short term or otherwise self interest to you know make your life difficult or you find yourself in a kind of a pickle of a situation out of your own creation, um, you'll find that for the most part, most people don't care. They're not really there to help you unless it's something in their own interest. So you have to think of ways, you know, since you said this, right, the key to, the key to victory lies in not being defeated. <laughs> so you have to make sure that you always have a plan A, B, and C and contingency plans and understand very carefully kind of what everyone's interests are and don't assume that just because, Hey, I'm Damien, I'm a great guy. Everyone's going to help me. No, frankly, most people don't really care. They'll, they'll be excited to see you in a, in a pickle, <laughs> right? 
So, you know, you have to own your own outcomes and you have to own you know, your own processes to ensure that you have a high likelihood of good outcomes. People will be helpful, you know, when either they're every now and then it's, you know, folks are going to be in a good mood and be, you know, free, you know, free with their advice. But for the most part, no, you, you've got to kind of create your own luck. And I, I find a lot of people, especially when they get in the GC chair, I made it. Now everyone left it. No. Uh, you, you have to continue the same processes and the same work to what got you there. And you're going to have friends, but most people you're going to have allies based on mutual interests and desires to simple outcomes. That Don't expect anything of, more than that. That idea of making it there kind of ties into the the next one. Uh, never get high on your own supply. <laughs> and I know that can be interpreted in many ways, but uh, the main thing I got from that was this like paradox of success where the things you did to get where you are, aren't necessarily the same things that are going to keep you there or uh, continue Always. to be successful in that. And it's probably ingrained in a lot of lawyers mind in particular, like, Hey, I worked my tail off going to law school, pounding away through a law firm. Like I earned this, like I put in my time, I made it here. Okay. Um, but I guess there's just no rest for the, the lawyer. Uh, they always have to keep on innovating, but I guess that's more of like a, an area of conceit, I guess like, Oh, well, you know, look at me, I've done all these things. Uh, I guess you're kind of talking about more of a, uh, a humility factor where, you know, we can't get too excited on all of our successes right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that I was just reading a book by uh, the former chairman of it was an investment bank some long ago called Bear Stearns. And he was, uh, Ace Greenberg was kind of the chairman and CEO of Bear Stearns for a number of years. I wrote a very, very, like 150 page book about musings from the chairman. And the thing that struck me about that and why it's related to this is that every time Bear Stearns had a great quarter or a great results, inevitably one of the notes that he would send out to the team was like, now is actually the time to double down on and guard against fraud, waste, laziness, poor execution. Because it's, and this is, you know, Mark Trailers talks about this too, is that at the moment at your kind of greatest success and in times of great success lie the seeds of your own destruction and your own weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by never getting high in your own supply, you might have gotten to where you might have achieved that goal that you wanted, right? You got to this role or you finished this project, whatever else. This and this is just human nature. It's not special to me or you or anyone else. It's those, it's those precise moments when you're at your highest point, when you're at your greatest danger. I mean, look at Will Smith, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he was right on top of the world and just you know lost it. And I think that you know that happens to GCs a lot too. You know, I've, I've made it to GC and we're we've now gone public. I've, I've, I've scaled the organization to do X, Y, and Z. And inevitably, I've seen it time and time again. There's that one oversight or you missed this filing or you forgot to do the minutes to capture this thing in the minutes or you let you send an underling to this particular key project because, you know what, I've made it. I deserve I deserve to let people grow. And, you know, no. And really what made you brought you there is going to keep you there. You know, that same sense of paranoia, that same sense of not perfectionism, but desire and chase for excellence. Um and it's precisely at those moments when you've kind of gotten there is when you really need to double down on it even harder. Just And this is Ace Greenberg said it. I mean, every time they'd have a good quarter, the note would go out to the whole firm. I'm 
doubling down on 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 fraud risk. I'm, I'm double check. I'm mm-hmm. making sure who people people waste staples and staple in documents coming to me. If I see more than one staple on a page, I'm going to go crazy. Like it was those kinds of things. And I think I took from that, and he was right. Like that's when you got to double down. Is when you're doing really really well. Not to push back, but just to see another perspective. Um, how do you square that with you know? celebrating small wins, uh, you know, appreciating your successes, you know, taking a step back and, you know, acknowledging your successes at the same time. Imagine that's healthy for an individual, an organization as well. If it's this culture of just constant grind, that could also be potentially harmful. So how do you square those two things of never being satisfied? You know, you've had a huge quarter, don't celebrate. Let's just focus. Let's double down. Uh, versus, hey, pat yourself on the back. Good job. <laughs> Feel good. Yeah, I, I think it's important that you you definitely have to celebrate. I mean, I don't mean to say that you don't. Um, you don't celebrate wins and things like that. Then you, particularly a, a large team, you just it's incredibly way to lose motivation, and over time it causes burnout. So definitely celebrate and acknowledge acknowledge when people are doing well and acknowledge, get that acknowledgement because it's fuel. It fuels people to drive, to drive them even more. But at a certain point, it's got to stop. So like, let's have the celebration. Let's have the dinner. Let's have the whatever, maybe even take a, you know, a, a two or three days off, go on vacation, whatever that is. But at a certain point, it's got to stop. And then you got to get back on, back onto the process, back onto the grind. I mean, that's how, I mean, look at the New England Patriots or, you know, my favorite example would be like a John Wooden type. Right, you know, John Wooden won what twelve NCAA championships in a row with a different team every year. Right, yeah, he celebrated absolutely, but you know that celebration is done. Time to get back to the process, and every year he started the process of this is how we put on our socks. <laughs> right, so he would start with the basics every every year, and the same goes for being a GC. Right, you got to have your process that you know doesn't ensure but gives a higher likelihood of good outcomes. And just because you've had a couple of good outcomes doesn't necessarily mean you're responsible for all of it. I mean, luck always has a range, has a random, there's a lot of randomness of things in life. But, you know, assuming that you've had a string of good, just because you had a string of good outcomes doesn't mean you're infallible. Definitely celebrate them because it's great. But at the end of the day, it's the process that you have that generates uh, those outcomes or highlights yeah, of good outcomes. You mentioned process a lot. I guess another word would be systems, uh, which you mentioned in the next principle, the commandment that systems beat goals. Uh, what's the difference between a system and a goal? Are goals, I mean, I imagine goals are still worthwhile uh, setting them and trying to achieve them, but perhaps in situations that are more dynamic, you know, you have to be potentially flexible with goals. So systems can kind of override complexity potentially and dynamic situations and then dynamic organizations. Um, so how do you, yeah, how do you square systems versus goals and why are systems better than goals? Yeah, I think goals, we tend to, I mean, it's interesting. Everyone's like, oh, I'm really outcome oriented. I'm goal oriented. That's great. You need, you know, everyone has a compass on a clock, right? Your compass has to be pointing somewhere, <laughs> right? And but the reason why, you know, goals too often are, let me back up. So 
there's a book that Bill Walsh wrote, and Bill Walsh, again, I'm a huge sports fanatic and coach fanatic, but Bill Walsh always said that, you know, at the end of the day, the score takes care of itself. And what he means by that is that at the end of the day, you can prepare for every eventuality, every possibility in preparing for a game in the middle of the game. And then nine times out of 10, what the outcome is, it's, it's something that's just random and it's luck. And then I think too often we overstate the impact or the influence of our own actions and the actions of the team on one particular outcome. I mean, you see this, you know, it's just, life is just random sometimes. Now, so that way, so if you're so focused on goals, too often you overweight your own importance to the achievement of that outcome. Systems are better because with a very good system, and, and the best people that I can think of have great systems are people like a Bill Walsh or people like a John Wooden or even Bill Belichick, and I hate the Patriots. Um, they have a system for player development, for practicing, for coming up with a strategy, for getting the people in the right mindset. That it doesn't necessarily they achieve doesn't mean that they achieve their goal year in year out. They didn't win the Super Bowl every year, but they were always in the NFC or AFC Championship game year in and year out, right? And it wasn't because you know half the time they got to the Super Bowl because it was their year, but other times it's just random. Sometimes the team's better than you on that day. Some like that's just life. So you're better off having a system, refining it, tweaking it, living by it, loving it, that gives you an increased likelihood of achieving those goals, right? Whether that you make the goals or not, are not always in your, not completely in control. Nothing is in control, but what is in control is that process and system. And to avoid being too general here, an example of a system that it, it could be like a routine. So what every Monday I, you know, uh, interview candidates and uh, here's my guideline for hiring uh, for my team. I mean, what are some examples of, implementing a system as a GC? Yeah, for me, I have a couple of different systems. And I'll say every time I've deviated from them, I've got terrible outcomes. So just, just I mean, terrible. One time I didn't, it actually worked out well, but that shows you the impact of luck there. Um, you know, one I have is for hiring, right? So typically, you know, I like to cast a very wide net. I have, you know, they'll take people will take kind of these personality assessments, you know, not the Hogan or anything like that, but I like the short form personality assessments. I uh, ensure that they talk to at least three people in the department, three people outside of the department. Uh, I always like to have kind of a, a last minute writing sample, a last minute project that is basically kind of something we'd expect you to do with no preparation. Um, and then lastly, you present that, make a presentation to a panel of people, whether it's me and some other folks. And I found that, and I tweak it. I've been tweaking it for a number of years now. But typically when I follow that process, 70% of the time, I get a very good hire. Very good to excellent hire. The other 30%, I'd say half the time it's fine. Not a home run, not a double, but it's, it's fine. No big deal. And then it's much smaller percent of the time, then it's just a bust. There are times when I, you know, but I, you know, when I don't follow the process either because I'm rushing or I don't really care or I got other things to do, and it just <laughs> the influence of luck and randomness increases considerably more, and it's never worked out for me. So I found that you know there are things that all GCs do: hire people, evaluate people. You come up come up with a system that over time raises the level of ag the aggregate level of performance of the organization, raises the likelihood of getting good hires, not having bad hires, 
you know, I haven't had a bad hire in a while now because I've rededicated myself to the system. To the system. Um, so that those are those are ex, those are good examples. I mean, there's some for board relations and, and CEO relations, but I think the hiring is probably the most critical one to develop first. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm holding back from getting more of your systems because that's maybe another podcast will go into those systems uh, in greater detail. Uh, it's probably board relations, CEO relations, probably outside counsel and sort outside of outside. Counsel. Yeah, yeah. It just, okay. I mean, the way you come up with them is you talk to other GCs. How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do this? How do you do that? Yeah. Write it down. Keep a, I mean, I, I keep a library of how other GCs have done certain things. And, you know, kind of, I've tried them out and over time I kind of made it my own. So, you know, if you're, particularly if you're early in your career, start doing that now immediately. Yeah, that's uh, another potential you know, thing you should be asking your tech GC members on the listserv is ask how people are implementing particular systems. You know, I, it's good for that last minute, you know, challenging issue that you need help with like right away. But I would encourage tech GC members to be proactive and try Absolutely. to reach out and learn about other people's broader systems. What do you do when you get a law enforcement subpoena? You know, what's yeah. your system? What's your practice? Yeah. What's your, because that so much of this stuff is, I mean, yeah, I love what I love about tech GC is, is that the community of knowledge because you don't have to reinvent the wheel for everything, but we could use it more and go deeper. Absolutely. All right, let's get on to the next one, which is actually, this one's pretty fun, especially in the startup space where you're dealing with uh, potentially erratic co-founder, CEOs. <laughs> uh, creative. Creative, creative and agile. Creative and agile. <laughs> creative like and agile that. CEOs high growth companies, uh, dynamic boards, you name it. Uh, commandment number five, got to have grit, but you got to know when to quit. And, you know, I, I believe you mentioned in your presentation that quitting itself is a skill and Absolutely. knowing when to quit is a skill. So why is it an important skill? When do you know when to, when to jump ship? Yeah, I mean, you know, I said earlier that everyone has a compass and a clock, right? So your compass is where you want to go in X number of period of time. That's your goal. And your clock is how much time is gonna you're going to spend on it. You're creating the system to do it and then working on that system. If over time you have, you know, there are certain things that, you know, I call it a pre-mortem. I always do a pre-mortem before I take a role. So, and it's part of that pre-mortem, you know, what are those kind of leading indicators or key things that you want to watch out for before you quit? Because again, we do life is long, but also it's short, right? It's short in terms of how we spend our time with who we're spending our time with. But if you get, you know, things like the CEO all of a sudden is particularly interested in legal, that's that's kind of a leading indicator, particularly for smaller tech companies, right? That that's just not a good sign usually. Um, are you noticing that you're not invited to a lot of you know high level strategic meetings? Probably a good sign. You know, are your peers, you know, peers in the executive suite, you know, making negative comments about your team in front of you or even behind your back? And it happens over and over again. That's usually a proxy for not going after you, but just going after the team and saying your team sucks, therefore you suck. Um, have you noticed that, you know, this? You know, <laughs> there are board meetings that are happening that you don't even know about? Oh, you weren't there. Oh, oh I forgot to invite you. Or leading indicator um if you are seeing that 
you know, you put on a significant amount of time in terms of demonstrating your your value above and beyond your expected value. And you're not saying kind of the the feedback or people coming to you for certain things. Not a sign that you can quit, but either sign of more work to do. But again, it's a data point that you can think about. Um, other data points, <laughs> you know, I was at a company where, you know, the CEO got fired and the whole company kind of blew up. But, you know, at the end of board meetings, just watch the body language, particularly if they're in person. Who's talking to whom? Is the CEO in a heated argument with like the lead director, one of the biggest investors? That's a problem. Um, so always, you know, before you take a role, have a do a pre-mortem. And if I see these four or five things, <laughs> then it might be time to look at you know, do something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are a lot of indicators. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, like what's your, you more. have to, yeah, I find you know, too often success in life isn't just sticking it, sticking it up and sticking it through and having a lot of grit. I mean, that that's great. But, you know, at the end of the day, success often tells you, you know, if you talk to good betters and good poker players, yeah, it's the number of hands, number of hands successfully played over a period of time, and your career is like that. And you know, people playing poker are playing. You know, they have a pretty good sense when they have a good hand or not. And knowing when to fold them, and it sounds like cliche, but it's true. Knowing when to fold them is equally important as knowing when to double down. Yeah. You know, I, trust me, I've made that. I've done that before too. So. You know, that, that, and it's not something that's really celebrated or taught or thought about as much. Um, but I think it's, it's something that you got to have those kill criteria <laughs> pretty well developed. Yeah. Obviously a stigma around quitting, right? Oh, you're a quitter. Uh, but at times you gotta. No, they're just, you know. look at the end of the day, if you, you know, you you're on the, you jump on the boat, you're really excited about it. Then you see leaks here. Then you see someone trying to throw you overboard or eating your share of rations and you're in a small, you know, like you're trying to get to the shore and eh, maybe I'm better off swimming <laughs> or maybe get in the other boat. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it's like, you know, quit at this first time of, of trouble, but just, you know, have a set of kill criteria that you are hyper aware of over time because look, no one wants to waste time doing something that, you know, either they're not valued or you think the enterprise isn't going to succeed. So the next one, what happens in legal stays in legal. What do you mean by that? Oh, wow. So you know, one is part of the legal department. It's important that everyone kind of understands confidentiality and whatnot. But at the end of the day, if you really want to build trust, the best legal teams are the ones that trust each other. And enjoy each other's company. Love working hard, but I will have fun. But the fundamental to that is understanding that what is done in house, whether from a cultural perspective, conversations, performance conversations, or things, should sustain legal. Because once they start getting out to other departments, then it then goes into creating a narrative, uh, particularly as a GC, of how you, what kind of leader you are, what kind of team you have. All of those things. So if there are issues or problems within the department, keep it within because if you don't, it only serves to come, it'll blow back on you. Um, you know, there's a section, I mean, we probably get into the other commandment about kind of snipers and spies <laughs> and whatnot. So it's related to it, but, you know, it's just, it's very, very important to have everyone have that same sense of trust and mutual obligation to one another. The moment you go outside and start oh, I have a problem here, I have a problem there, that trust is then gone, and then it ends up weakening the entire department. I mean, you're the captain of the ship. 
And then all of a sudden you got people on the ship under your command, you know, going to headquarters or going to somewhere else, but, and that bringing them to you. I mean, that's never, it usually doesn't lead to good outcomes. Must be a challenge to establish that trust. It could be too heavy handed. I mean, Getting a blood it. oath from everybody is probably maybe not it. the best approach, uh, but you, you, you have to just give like, it first. You yeah. have to give it first. That's the only way to get it back is to give it first and take risks on people. But again, we go back to the system for hiring and the system for keeping people and the system mm. for valuing. So mm. generally speaking, you'll have a pretty good sense of who's there, but you get it all starts with giving it first. You don't, no one gives it to you the only way you have to give it first. Yeah. I mean, that first hiring, having that system of hiring, doing that right can have so many benefits and doing it wrong can have so many hardships Boom. follow following <laughs> you could potentially hire a crazy person and uh this leads to your next commandment which is you can't coach crazy so never coach crazy. you can't coach crazy it. yeah and i mean how do you know you're dealing with crazy and yeah i'd be interested in hearing that attempt to, you know, get HR involved and do some full coaching. You're like, okay, this isn't working out, but maybe we can salvage this. Uh, so how do you, how do you square finding someone who's crazy? <laughs> and, uh, you know, how do you know if, uh, your, your coaching is meaningless? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is again a lot of scars here on this one, but Typically, if you're coming in new to our organization, everyone in the organization already pretty much knows who in your department is crazy. Who's, 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 they know. So you got to very quickly kind of, and you can do this by asking around, talk to all your executives, talk to people, junior people in HR, talk to the secretaries. You'll get a pretty good accurate reading of who's crazy in the org. And the number of times I've tried and failed to say, hey, it's just the right environment change or maybe just a little bit of coaching, more exposure. No, nothing's ever going to be good enough. Your time is very valuable. It can't be, you know, you shouldn't waste, spend a lot of your effort on someone who's never going to be happy or malcontent or who's always stirring stuff up. And, you know, once, again, once you've identified them, either through, everyone knows them in the org, like they, especially these smaller tech companies, everyone knows who's crazy. Um, and everyone's watching you, how you manage this when you came in. It's like, oh, here he comes. Let's see how he manages that person, right? Um, so one, you know, people are going to know. Two, most people get on the GC world are going to have enough EQ to kind of realize that if people begin repeating patterns, that's always an issue with this person. Um, and I've, you know, hey, let me work with the person. Let me get, at least bring them up to someone that's serviceable and see if I can get whatever kind of value. No, no. No, 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 no. Not worth your time. You're better off removing that person from, from, the, from the organization or from the department and just suffering until you get a replacement because it will take all of your emotional energy where you could be adding value to the business. It will take all of your time where you could be working on some really higher impact stuff. It detracts morale from the rest of your department. And then it ultimately erodes your leadership because, again, your peer executives now, your probably CEO probably knows, Everyone in the group probably knows that there's a, that one or two crazy people in your org and you haven't dealt with them yet. And Miracles I, don't happen. You're not going to turn them around. <laughs> again, to avo avoid uh, overgeneralization, how does crazy present itself? I mean, is this defiance? Is this saying, you know, off-putting things on a consistent basis? How have you seen 
quote unquote crazy <laughs> arising um, business. It, it's the it's the person who's always stirring up misalignment, drama, and every inter I mean, and too many interactions over a period of time. So and it's or it's or it's personal issues that are then driving kind of drama, misalignment in the organization over durationally significant period of time. Let's call it three months. <laughs> um, and it could, and then and it presents itself in other people in your organization complaining about this person's behavior on a call or in a meeting. Uh, some person not being responsive, someone berating someone, you know, not knowing how to manage or deal with people. Those are typical ways. Um, never getting their assignments done on time because of, I don't know, meteorite hit their backyard or there you can hear them arguing with their dog or something like that in the background but typically it's those people who cause disruption misalignment and then quote-unquote drama the catch-all within the department or the outside of the organization and then over time you're getting those feedback and it's the same person or the same like over and over and over again you know you get unpleasant people but if they're impactful and effective you can manage that right people are just kind of gruff fine you get the extra happy people who don't necessarily follow through and everything they want to do. That's manageable too. But that person who's like always makes everyone else's job 10 times as hard or wastes a lot of, makes you everyone else waste energy on things that aren't that important. And so would you abide by kind of a higher, slow fire, fast philosophy, have a diligent hiring process and really ensure that there's a good hire but if there isn't uh, a good relationship starting out in the first month or two or three, you want to you cut that tie, you know, as Absolutely. fast as possible. Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, hire very slow, fire very quickly. It's it's it, it's Mother Teresa on the way in. It's Spock while you're here, <laughs> and it's Mother Teresa on the way out. <laughs> so, you know. Hey, how you doing? You're in Spock. Just this is going well. This is not going well. This 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 is very direct, very what's very factual based. If it's not working out, then it's wish you well. It's been great. All right, and the and the final one, and I guess crazy could potentially uh, show itself in that you must successfully deal with soldiers, snipers, and spies. Uh, who are soldiers, snipers, and spies within an organization? Does everybody contain one of these oh, attributions? So absolutely. you're either a soldier, a sniper, a spy, and or all of the above. You, you <laughs> Sometimes all <want>, of <laughs> the above. But you want a company full of soldiers, uh, or you want a dynamic? <laughs> explain, so, explain these uh, personalities. So, so if you're, you know, if you're a sitting GC, you want most people on your team. Effectively, to be soldiers. As part of those soldiers, you're gonna. Some folks are gonna be, you know, call it staff officers, direct reports, loyal to you, to your mission, your vision, your you know, your goals as the leader of the organization. Then you're gonna have mercenaries, who are most people in your organization, who are just there for a paycheck. Could really care who's in the chair as GC or not. I'm just here because I need a job and. The GCs come and go and whatever. Those are folks are fine. They're mercenaries, not soldiers, right? And then you get snipers and spies. So within the organization, you get some people who are either mad that you had that job because they want it, or you replaced their good friend, or you fired a friend of theirs. They then, you know, they then start taking pot shots at you at every opportunity when you're not around. Before you join the 
team meeting, after the team meeting, other executives in the organization, well, you know, so-and-so, that's a sniper. And I've been a sniper before, trust me. I've been, I've been a sniper in parts of my career. So that may, but let's be real here. Um, you know, and spies are similar to snipers, but often even worse because they're probably a mercenary or they act like they're a soldier in your organization, but they're really working for someone else to further their own agenda, to gather information that would ultimately be helpful for them. So, you know, soldiers are a premium. You're probably only going to have two max, you know, maybe three if you're really lucky, but two is pretty much what you're going to have. Um, most are going to be mercenaries and sniper and spies. The moment you're aware of someone being a sniper and spy, you got two options, right? Snipers eliminate immediately. Spies are you to try to turn them, hmm. which should be very it's fraught, but it works from time to time. Where you two shots to the dome, gone, hmm. uh, because time spent on dealing with those kinds of things and not achieving working your system and trying to achieve those objectives for you personally and for the department and the organization is time wasted. And it, it is the biggest distraction and probably the, some of the, one of the biggest sources of pain that I've talked to with GCs about. And you got to think about how do you spot them, right? Who's vouching for them in the staff meetings of the other executive team? You know, you say something to the person, how did it come back to you? <laughs> right? Who brought it back to you? Um, snipers, dealt with immediately. You said there's only a couple soldiers. Is it, it you mentioned like within your team or like within an entire organization, there's only a couple. Your, yeah. Between, on your team, there's probably not going to be many. Most people, you know, and this is just life. Most people are in your department are not there because they love you as the GC and they love the mission of the company. No, come on. That's, they want a paycheck. The environment's cool. The culture's fine. And that's most people in your department. A real soldier, people who really that you can have a no look past relationship with, need you to take that hill. Fine. And I'm not even thinking about it anymore. Those are very rare and few and far between. So, and then once you spot those folks, they are the ones who, for the most part, your success is extraordinarily dependent upon them. You know, as a leader of an organization, you're only as good as your team. And you're really only as good as the people were really kind of aligned with you from a value standpoint, from a mission standpoint, your soldiers. And, you know, organizations with you know, 100 people or more, even then, you might have three. You know, that's the Pareto principle of, of, yeah. <laughs> of organizations, right? So that's kind of luck. That's kind of an inherited quality. You can't, no matter how much coaching you do, really convert a mercenary to a soldier. Um, or it's extremely difficult. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can you can do it. It just takes time and money and exposure, right? Because you know, a lot of people come off being mercenaries. You don't know why. Maybe it's because they have bad experiences. Maybe because they're working on their side project. Maybe they, who knows? And yeah, you can convert convert mercenaries into soldiers. It just takes a long period of time. Typically, soldiers make themselves known <laughs> to you. Um, and again, you know. If there's particularly if there's people one or two layers down in the org or have been in around for a while but never really spent a lot of leadership, never spent a lot of time or resources with them, you can kind of cultivate it. But critically important to folks' success is developing and nurturing those with those soldiers. Spies. Not, I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say that's not something you try to suss out in the interview process. Like, okay, this you never know. You, you, you can't really. You, know, yeah. you don't really know. Until you've got the job 
because usually that first three month period of getting in the job is when everyone kind of makes themselves known very quickly. And then you kind of keep an eye on it, but it's usually in those first 90 days, you figure out who the spies are, who the mercenaries are, and who wants to be a soldier, but definitely the spies and the, and the snipers, you, you learn that very quickly. So just to repeat these eight commandments here. So number one, make your perceived value greater than your expected value. Number two, no one is coming to save you. Number three, never get high on your own supply. Number four, systems beat goals. Number five, gotta have grit, but you gotta know when to quit. Number six, what happens in legal stays in legal. Number seven, can't coach crazy. And number eight, must successfully deal with soldiers, snipers, and spies. Absolutely. I know you're adhering to the never get high on your own supply. I know you've been following these commandments and I'm sure they've been super helpful for you, but I'm sure you're not accepting that as your, where you want to be forever and you just repeat the same stuff over and over again.